So I wanted to uh, talk to you tonight about um, a word in the Pali Canon called Sankaras and uh, try to open that topic up a little bit. Um, but I also uh, I get to visit this community a few times and it always feels like a sort of a one-way relationship. <laughs> so I'm hoping that there'd be uh, a little time for maybe more um, your reflections on the topic or some a little bit more dialogue. So I'll just prime it a little bit and hopefully that will happen. So this word uh, sankara, it comes up a lot in some of the core Buddhist teachings in the Pali Canon. And it, the root of it is um, sam ankara, which means to, um, to come together or um, place together to create. So it's an active process of creation. And the uh, sankaras um, are, sometimes that word is translated as formations and, or fabrications or uh, volitional formations. I'll try to unpack that a little bit. But it's considered that uh, sankaras are something that, are, that come together, that come into being. So uh, on one level, sankaras are everything. The entire universe uh, is made up of sankaras. It's made up of things that came into being, depending on your creation myth. Um, there was a creation of the universe. And then <clears throat> within that, there are smaller creations. Each one of us has a creation, has a sort of a conception moment or a birth moment, and we have a moment of passing. This great meditation hall here, it had a, a date when it was built. And uh, if the theory holds true, it will have a date of demise. Everything <clears throat> that you come in contact with um, is undergoing this process of change. And that all the, uh, everything you, um, you interact with, people, cars, trees, houses, um, the world itself, is a collection of these uh, sankaras, things that have come into being. This, this uh, topic of sankara, um, it, it comes up in a few different key te- uh, teachings. Um, one of them being dependent origination, which is the, the second of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. It comes in um, when the Buddha is talking about the five aggregates. So if you don't know these lists, uh, don't, don't check out yet. <laughs> but if you do, you can see that it, um, these are core teachings, dependent origination, the five aggregates. But one of the more um, kind of a salient, more um, evocative moments where this word sankara comes is actually right at the Buddha's death. So the Buddha has been teaching uh, for decades, and his uh, loyal attendant, his cousin Ananda, has heard everything he has to say, and he's walking around with him, and he's been by his side for a long time, learning that things are impermanent. And then one of the Buddha's uh, uh, main disciples, Sariputta, also is growing older, and he dies. And Ananda is grief-stricken. He sort of turns to the Buddha and says, oh, there's, you know, very sorrowful event, sorry, Buddha has died. And the Buddha says, why are you upset? You know, I've been teaching you nonstop that something that has a birth has a death. This is so natural. It's like the sun rising. It's like you're crying over a sunset. It's just, that's what happens. So Ananda gets the little lesson. But then it comes time for the Buddha to die. 
He has a birth, so he also will have a death. He comes into being. The Buddha himself is a sankara. He's a collection of things that have come into being. And the Buddha um, is passing away, and he looks in the eyes of all his disciples, and he sees grief. And he scolds them. He says, I've been teaching this nonstop. This is so natural. Of course I would pass away. And it's the resistance to the fact that things pass that causes you the grief. Not that things pass, because that's very lawful. So the Buddha is lying there, and he gives his last sermon, and he passes away. And then the, um, the gods who are watching this, because they take an interest in the Buddha too, the, one of the gods who's watching this um, utters this short uh, little stanza. Anicca vata sankara upaduva yadamino upajitava nirujanti tesam upasamo suko. And this little four-line stanza is chanted in Asia, in um, Theravada Buddhist countries, when someone passes away, to align people into the wisdom that something that comes into being uh, naturally has to pass. And that's the true for all sankaras. It's true for our bodies, it's true for our cars, it's true for the houses, it's true for the planet, it's true for our sun, and eventually maybe even true for our universe. Those four lines, anicca vata sankara, Anicca is the Pali word for the, the profundity of change, that all things are changing. Anicca vata sankara. All conditioned things are impermanent. The next two lines are what arises passes. Coming into being, there will be ceasing. And the last line, te sam upasamo suko says that calming these formations, calming this process of creation and passing, birth and death, or bringing it to a still point, brings the greatest happiness. Not new creations, not better creations, but learning how to calm this process of constantly constructing and losing, constructing and losing, constructing and losing. So, that, that was what, what was uh, sung at the Buddha's death. You know, Vata Sankara puts that um, the, the god who had listened to the Buddha's teachings wanted to sort of uh, help all his followers and kind of uh, encapsulate the Buddha's life and his teachings in a short stanza, and that's what was offered there. So, all things are constructed. All things have a beginning. This building, uh, I'm not sure if you, any of you have ever worked in um, housing construction, if you've ever seen a building built. Um, I did when I was younger. And it's fascinating to have spent, I guess it was maybe um, 20, maybe 20 years of my life <clears throat> having lived in houses and never seen them built, and then to actually go through the process of building a house and seeing an empty lot go through the whole many, many stages of actually building a house. So you put the paint on, it dries, and someone moves in. The benefit of that is that you actually know how it's constructed. And so that it has a birth, you can actually see it. You can understand how it comes into being. Those of you who are parents, you know what the birthing process is like. People don't just sort of show up uh, at this age and kind of into your life like, oh, you actually, you were born at one point. 
So the initial stage of how something comes into being, um, when you have experience with it, you can see that there's an a initial process of something coming into being. It lives for as long as it can, as long as the conditions under that, um, under that being are stable. And then there's an aging process and uh, things pass away. And that's sort of what sankaras do. So all things are sankaras, all things go through this process. And that's what the Buddha was trying to align people to. Because what we tend to do is not relate to sankaras as if they're impermanent. We tend to like the security. This place has been here for a long time. So let's just assume it's going to be here next Thursday. You know, it's on the schedule. There's already someone who's going to speak here next Thursday. So let's hope the building's here, right? And that generally has been true. Generally has been true. But we don't know that it's going to be here. You know, especially if you live in Northern California, you know about earthquakes, you know about the big one that uh, may be coming or is coming, we just don't know when. That's a set of conditions. As long as that isn't happening, this building will not be so challenged. But those are conditions that this building gets to uh, be stable as long as that's not happening. So in the Buddha's teachings, he's teaching about this. He's teaching about all things change. He's teaching that uh, um, all things are sankaras. All things come come into being. They have a, a beginning. They have an end. But then he dials it down a little closer. He says, what I'm really interested in is why we suffer. So all things change, and we can all know that. We can all uh, witness whether things change or not. If you look closely enough, you can see that things change. In this building, if you looked at it, if you were here when it was built, you can see there are little cracks in the walls, and the, the paint has faded some, and there are chips on the floor. So it's, going, it's definitely going through its process. What he was interested in is why we suffer. So the Buddha really wanted to dial us in to why we suffer and how to end that process of suffering. So he didn't just want to preach that all things change. He wanted to preach and help us understand because we don't relate to that process well, we add uh, suffering onto this natural process of things arising and passing. We struggle over this. So he wanted to look at that pattern closely. And that's where we come into these uh, two other teachings, these two other sets of teachings that the Buddha gave about the five aggregates and dependent origination the five aggregates is <clears throat> looking at where our suffering comes from. It actually comes from our, the patterns in our hearts and our minds. So uh, my suffering doesn't come from the fact that I have unpleasant experiences. That's sort of built into being alive. My suffering doesn't come from the fact that I age. That's also just you know, a given that there'll be an aging process. My suffering is because I resist it. I resist unpleasant experiences. I cling to pleasant experiences, hoping that they are permanent and they'll last. And um, I uh, want to try to make things stable so I don't have to feel the anxiety of their instability. So when he's looking at all things are constructed, he then dials in to say, I'm interested in the constructions, the sankharas, that come into being, that are operating, that trip us up. And the sankharas that come into being are actually our mental and emotional patterns. So in this broad word sankara, that all things are sankaras, he often will dial it down and say, 
let's look at the patterns, the emotional and the mental patterns that set us up for suffering. So the sankharas that, are, that come into being that are around our cravings and our aversions and our clingings, those set us up for suffering. So that's when we get into uh, dependent origination. The word sankhara arises through a, a misunderstanding about change, through a belief in the fact that there is uh, a me here and a you there, and you, you have this type of fundamental existence that you are static, like we think this building is static. We often relate to ourselves as if we're static, and then we're shocked when we change. But if you can allow yourself to be in a fluid changing process, then you can actually adapt moment by moment to how you are changing. And that's a complex story to be in that much flux and that much change. So we take a step back and we tend to treat ourselves like static nouns. So I am temple. That's been my name since birth, in case you were wondering. Yeah. <laughs> I know the question floats out there. <clears throat> and so I, I treat myself like static. Like I'm a, I have a static life and I get comfort in that. And then I'm troubled when it changes. And if I could allow myself to be in a state of flux, the flux would just be natural. So I was living in one house for a year, settled in, kind of began to you know, dream a future in this house that it was going to be uh, many years, and kind of like that story. And when the conditions under that story shifted and made it impossible for me to live there, I you know, didn't want to give up easy, because I'm not you know, just going to go with whatever, but... <laughs> You know, I, I, how much resistance is helpful, because I didn't know the real outcome, but then it became clear that I wasn't going to stay in that house. And so then it became a measure of saying, yes, change happens, and this is one of those changes. And I had to kind of un- untangle my roots from the stasis I had been enjoying. There are monks in Burma who undertake a practice that they'll never stay in the same monastery for more than three nights so that they never fall into the trap of this stasis. There are other monks (laughs) where um, they never stay in the same kuti, for the same cabin for more than, you know, three or four days, and they're just constantly moving so that, and the mind, everywhere you move, is like, oh, here's my home, I can just stay here, oh, thank God. And then you eventually do have to move. Um, And when someone gets too attached to their their teeth or cabin, maybe something will come along to move them along so that they can you know, wake up from that type of <coughs> wanting things to be static. It's a very deep part of our conditioning to want the relief of something static. Yet the entire universe is in flux. There's nothing static about it. Um, so that's our conundrum. We want the rest and reassurance of something we can trust. And yet, and we want that trust to be something as obvious as stasis. And yet we're in a place of constant, unending flux. So <clears throat> the sankharas um, that arise, that the Buddha spends a little bit more time talking about, are mental patterns and emotional patterns. And some of that is the sankharas that create our sense of wisdom or uh, misunderstanding how that comes into being, how our beliefs come into being. A belief is a sankhara. It's an ephemeral sankhara, not like a body. But you have beliefs, and you weren't necessarily born with those beliefs. So those beliefs, too, had a beginning for you, and they'll have an ending. 
And they might end when you pass away, but they also might end as you grow up and challenge those beliefs and see like they're not worth investing in. They're a misunderstanding. So a misunderstanding about stasis. Um, that's a good one to investigate and say there's things change so slowly, there's temporary stasis. But when you look really closely, things are constantly changing. So I'm not going to invest too much in stasis, but it, it's a working um, theory that my car is still where I parked it. But if I get there and it's not, <laughs> I haven't I set myself up for a huge fall. Um, when I come up and it's been twice, um, twice when I was living in San Francisco, in six months, I came out to my car and it had been parked in one place, but I parked it too close to a red light <clears throat> and someone sped through the red light, misjudged the turn and hit my car when it was parked. Then it was a hit and run. So the first time you come out and your car is just smashed and you get it fixed. And six months later, the same thing happened. And <clears throat> all I had with me that second time was I knew what to do, but I was still just as shocked. <laughs> it happened once, so because it happened once, you think, okay, these things happen. But that happened twice was actually much more shocking <laughs> than that it happened, happened once. And then my insurance agency gave up on me. <laughs> like, something's, something's up with you in San Francisco. In your car, uh, so let's just part ways. Good, lo- you know, love you and good luck. <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had to adjust. So, um, another thing, I just got off a um, teaching retreat at Spirit Rock, and this one little um, parable was kind of just kept flooding my mind, so it's still in me, so I'm going to share it with you. So if you're on the retreat, you're getting a, an extra helping. But there's this parable in, um, of the princess and the pea. So the princess and the pea, um, they're testing whether she uh, is pure enough to be able to feel a pea blow a mattress, and they want to make sure she's uh, incredibly pure, so they give her 20 mattresses. They put a little hard pea under the 20 mattress, the 20th mattress, and she can feel it. So <clears throat> that shows that she has this incredible uh, capacity to, to feel that deeply and that sensitively. And the reason that parable has stuck with me is that um, my mind came up with a bit of a, a pre-story of how she trained for that. <laughs> and I think she trained with mindfulness meditation and where she laid on the first mattress and covered it with peas and seeing if she could actually feel the peas right up against her skin. And she could, and she knew there were 20, or let's say 37 peas, and she could, yep, there's one, two, three, four, and she could feel that. And she put one mattress down, put the peas under the mattress, and like, can I feel them through this mattress? And she settles in, and she begins, yep, oh, there's one, there's another one, there's another one. And she keeps adding mattresses and seeing if she can actually feel uh, so deeply into her own body, so deeply into her own heart, into her own mind, that she can actually feel these little hard places. And that's often what the, uh, the sankaras feel like if you're trying to track your own patterns of clinging. There are places in your own mind, in your own heart, where there's inflexibility, a type of clinging, this is the way things should be, this is the way I think I want them to be, this is, that's wrong and this is right, and a tightness Around that tightness, you're trying to find security in the tightness, but it ends up feeling like a little uh, pea stuck in your brain or your heart 
or you can feel the knots in your body, the stress knots in your body where you've resisted something and in that resistance you've stored that stress as a knot in your back maybe or sometimes getting headaches of stress. So we have these patterns and they will eventually change just given the laws of how things how things work, they eventually do change. But there's ways to help them change, there's ways to help them speed up. Um, and that's what a lot of mindfulness meditation is, the loving kindness meditation and the pasana meditation. So mindfulness meditation is just bringing yourself deeper into self-intimacy and feeling what it's like in your body, feeling what it's like in your heart, in your mind, and getting a sense, where am I uh, thriving? What actually is healthy? And what actually is really painful? And can I open up to grief and sorrow and fear and a type of obsessive longing? And just by spending some time being intimate with those patterns, they have this uh, characteristic of dissolving just with simple direct attention. Those that don't dissolve the simple direct attention, you can then add a little inquiry. This is where Vipassana comes in. So mindfulness just brings in this steady intimacy with your felt sense of your body, the felt sense of your uh, emotional patterns, and you have mental patterns too, beliefs and ways of thinking. You bring mindfulness into that, and you begin to reflect this thing that I'm encountering, this knot in my back, this emotional state, this type of thinking, is it permanent or is it impermanent? And you, if you're really intimate with it, you can begin to see actually it's not permanent. Even this knot in my back that feels like it's been there my whole life, it hasn't been there the whole life. And if I really feel into it, it's actually a whole bunch of little sensations uh, packed into one big ball <coughs> and they're all fluctuating and changing. So the collection feels like it's fairly steady but it's built of all these tiny little changing experiences. The same certain thought patterns that happen, or emotional patterns, they're in flux. And when you see they're in flux, you can relax the belief that they're static. You can see that they're ever-changing. That helps also dissolve them, seeing that they are changing experiences. You can also do a deeper reflection of whether this part of me defines me. Am I a noun or am I a verb? Am I a changing process or is there something static about me? Like, okay, well, what is static about me? Um, okay, my teeth are static. And you feel into your teeth, and it's like, well, actually, they're hard bone, but I can still feel that they shift and move, and I have cavities, and so they haven't actually been static, and so they don't define me, my teeth. How about my skin? Well, that's definitely changing. It tans, it ages. Um, what about me is static enough to define me that I can actually say, this has always been me, and this will always be me? deepening your self-intimacy, you can see everything about you is changing. Your body is going through an aging process. Your beliefs are going through an aging process, a maturation process, hopefully. Um, Emotional patterns are constantly changing. So the more self-intimacy you have, the more you come in truth, where you come in contact with the truth of change. And you only get to see things as static if you're not intimate with them. When I become familiar with something I get to lose intimacy with it, just use the familiarity, and then it it seems fairly static. So if you're not that familiar with this building, but you come here every week, 
or if you come every week, you get to a type of familiarity where you stop looking at it. And so you're not noticing that the cracks are getting longer. You're not noticing that the floor is ding from where someone dropped their whatever last week. You're not noticing the fact that it's going through a changing process. I got to sit a uh, 12-day meditation retreat with my dad. And uh, it was great of him to do that. It was one of his great sacrifices to uh, keep our relationship current. And so he sat right next to me. And about um, it was a 12-day silent retreat. And about like four or five days in, I began to see that as well as I knew him at that time in my life, it was maybe, I was 27, um, 27 years of experiencing him, I had stopped finding new questions to ask him. So I pretty much realized I could not get smaller and smaller questions, but I pretty much had mapped him out. And I liked him, I was very familiar with him. But then as my own, um, as my own intimacy with my own thinking began to develop, those beliefs that I understand him and knew him began to crumble. I didn't even know that I had them until they started crumbling. And then at one point, he was sitting in meditation, and I looked around, no one was looking, and I just stared at him. <laughs> like, I have no idea who this guy is. I really don't understand his childhood. I mean, I get the story, but there's so much lost that I will never know. I don't really know what he's thinking. I mean, he can barely get what he's thinking out through this little, you know, voice. So there's so much inside of him. There's so much that he's experienced I'll never know. And I actually took it to a level like, oh my God, I've never known him. <laughs> Who is this stranger next to me that I think I've mapped? And, and then after that retreat, it was wonderful to travel around with him. And I found all these fresh questions I could ask about him. Learned tons about him after that retreat because I just stopped thinking I knew him. And that intimacy actually opened up uh, a whole new level of curiosity about him. And I love bringing my friends <clears throat> um, to meet him when he comes out to travel because they'll ask him questions I never would have thought of and he'll have to frame himself differently to them. And so now he's an unending mystery that is kind of fun to explore. But what had happened without really tracking it was I was getting into this like stiffening my relationship to him. It was very comfortable, but it was sort of dead-ending in a way, like we'd run out of things to really explore or talk about. So that's, a ty- that's also a type of sankara. This word sankara is very universal. That type of pattern of how I was perceiving of him was a construction, and I was taking it for static. And when I put attention on it, it fell apart, and it opened him back up again to an ever-changing process. And that's where mindfulness comes in, and it comes in with vipassana. You ask these questions about, is this changing, is that changing? And then as you go through your own heart, mind, and body, you find these places where there's something that you don't even know that you get the question, but suddenly you begin to be self-intimate. You're like, actually, what is this thing? What is this belief? What is this belief? Oh, I had a belief for years that um, there's no way I would do public speaking ever, ever people, never put me in front of an audience anything but that. And now this is actually my life. I'm, I do a lot of public speaking and I enjoy it. But that belief was as hard as diamond in my mind, that that was like a truth. And it was a construction. And it can be deconstructed. The great thing about building a house is that you can put on a wing. Like you can just go in there and like, oh yeah, we can move that around, move that around. If you know how it's constructed, you can deconstruct it. 
that's another part of the self-intimacy, is watching how your mind uh, goes through its patterns and learning that those patterns are optional, that they're not permanent. I had another great experience of this where I was traveling with my friend Pascal. Maybe some of you know Pascal. Um, He's another Dharma teacher. But <clears throat> I'd been traveling through Burma for years, and I invited him to come with me. And when I walked out of the bus, we would walk off the bus about the same time. But due to his patterns, he would have a completely different experience than I would. And I knew Burma, so I was like, oh, I'm going to show him what it's all about. And he began to show me what Burma was about because he has different patterns. And so he would walk off the bus, and he's very kind of uh, joyful, optimistic, and kind of an extrovert. And I'm not the opposite of all those things, but not to his degree. So he would step off the bus, we'd both step off, and all of a sudden he would have a very different experience of this new town. And he'd be meeting different people and be inspired to do different things. That's his patterns. His patterns are different than my patterns. But it was a great reflection because I got to see that over and over and over. We would, have, we would initiate the same experience and it would unfold very differently. And I would always think it was the experience I was having. This is what Burma is like. But I got to see is actually this is what I'm like in Burma. And this is what Pascal is like in Burma. And we're, we have some similarities, but also radical differences. And then we met up and traveled with a third friend. And now this is what I'm like in Burma. This is what she is like in Burma. This is what he is like in Burma. This is what we are like in this town. This is what we are like in that town. And you get to see how you are patterned. And that's a great part about travel is you get to see these things you've taken for granted as static are actually very optional. It's just all day long you keep reinforcing them. You keep repainting the walls, covering the cracks, and you keep re, uh, reaffirming your beliefs. And they're just beliefs. They're not actually truths. So to give a little chance for um, a little dialogue or a question or your own reflection on this, um, I'm going to wrap up this portion and then open up to see if there's anything you want to ask about or share in your own reflection about this. I'm wondering if there would be a volunteer who would actually um, work this mic, uh, if there's somebody out there. So just raise your hand if you want to actually. Yeah. Is there a question? So many of you are experiencing the sankaras of public speaking fear. <laughs> Just to know that. Or not. Maybe you're experiencing the bliss of a, of a thoughtless mind. Mm. Yeah, there's one here. Let's go here first. Just for the ease. So you're here first. Yeah. Um, well, I spent um, this afternoon with um, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship because there was a um, protest in the city. And... Um, the word is Sankara. 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 Okay, well, this church was built, it was first a church, and um, it was built one day, and I feel like um, like um, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and also um, the Green Sangha and stuff, I feel like are going to be, I can just feel it, are going to become in the process of becoming really um, a force, forces out there. Mm. And there are all these different sanghas. We got the Zens, we got the Shambhala people and everything. And I think um, we don't meet each other and um, as often as we should. So I'm kind of looking forward to that, where we can make change together. And, mm. um, 
And just because it didn't like really exist as strong or, you know, as strong a force as maybe we, you know, it could be, doesn't mean it can't be. Yeah. Yeah. Come yeah. into, yeah. And if you get conscious of the process, you can actually build positive sankaras. These, they're not going to last necessarily. Uh, they can last thousands of years, but they're still worth building. These buildings are still worth building. You know, they're not going to last. And back there. So, um, you were talking about when the Buddha was dying and when another teacher was dying. And I heard another story, I don't remember any of the names, but so this teacher, his teacher had died, and he's crying. And then the student, the one who's still alive, says, well, you told us about non-attachment, and so I'm wondering why you're crying. And the teacher's comment was, I'm sad. Mm. So um, I'm wondering how how that fits in with your story. I mean, to me, you can be sad without being attached. Mm. And you can have emotions without being attached to them. It's just Mm -hmm. allowing. So if you could speak to that, please. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I I would agree that... um, I've had a type of um, of compassion that feels very much like a sweet sadness. It's just whether you are whether you're finding the reality you're facing wrong. And so, if your sadness is arising, and really, it's it's so much more about the uh, the evocative intimacy of that moment. That when someone passes, there's a lot of compassion there, and there's a lot of intimacy and connection. It's when the mind begins to say, this is wrong, or this shouldn't have happened, or the type of um, fight against it, because you can't actually open up to it. That type of struggle uh, tends to cause suffering, tends to cause a type of um, agitation. And I worked in the, um, the Zen hospice for a year, and part of the belief is we, we still want people to live, we want them to be happy and healthy, but when they're in a process where that's not likely, then let's not call it bad. So we still try to do pain reduction, and some people even recovered from the from the hospice ward, and so that was still advocated for. But if that wasn't happening, how do you align yourself with this process? How do you align yourself and not call it bad or regretful? And then you find that it's actually, you know, since we're all going to face that moment, it's a beautiful way to face it with aligning towards it. And there was room if you have a sensitive heart. I don't know if, if there are any Republicans in the room, but uh, <laughs> when Rick Perry made his mistake and says, you all are heartless if you don't care about immigrant children, and then had to like rec- recant the statement, I was like, oh my God, who is that guy on the stage? You know, who would actually call his fellow Republicans heartless for not caring about immigrant children? I mean, like he has a sensitive heart. And then it looked like it was a mistake that he had to recant, but I was like, there's hope. There's hope. <laughs> Someone actually in there is not just a talking head. He actually says, what do you mean we're not going to educate and take care of these American children? Of course we are. Oops. And then you know, he showed that they had a warm heart under that politician facade. So I think having a warm heart is actually a beautiful thing. And we don't want to meditate our way into a type of like steely numbness. 
because that's just another sankara. Maybe one more. Down here. Thanks. Um, when the resistance comes up, you know, from my practice here, I feel that um, I'm learning to just work with the resistance. Yeah. I feel I'm just really grateful for that right now because that used to be just going up with resistance, which just is more samsara, really. <laughs> but so it's, it's really, um, you know, that's um, finding that that's good enough yeah. feels like sankara. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's enough, and it really, and it's really the cornerstone of what makes me deepen my spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. More pain I get in, not to advocate being in pain, <laughs> but if you're working on that deep sensitivity to myself and others, you know, that is part of what comes sometimes, especially if I'm not used to it, is I actually feel pain more acutely than I have in the past. And mm-hmm. so, you know, um, it's kind of a catch-22 in a way, you know, because like, wow, am I really ready for this? And But um, I'm really grateful because I do feel as if um, I find myself caught in the cycle. I'm I'm able to have just sometimes little bits of space, and I go, oh, you know. And it really does, I really am amazed that here's change coming from me. (laughs) Of Wow, I need to deepen my spiritual practice, you know. And that Mm -hmm. didn't used to be, you know, the wisdom that would come out of, pain that I'm feeling and, and it really um, it really is right now I'm like yes I know that that's where the relief is to look for wisdom and compassion as a path to and it's not you know but re- it's a relieving but it's a sense of relief but actually it's really I guess it's kind of more acceptance mm. um, and relaxing so that I'm not um, going up against it and actually causing myself and others more pain you know than than what already is true to the you know to to um the scenario yeah yeah and sometimes we can get a sense that uh dharma practice is about <clears throat> you know being willing to face more and more pain and really it's a it's about being just more intimate with the way things are and when we're intimate with the way things are, there's a mix. And sometimes we have long, it's, it's, we have long stretches where there's not a lot of graphic pain. And some people who are used to pain actually get very unnerved by a lot of pleasure. They're actually disoriented. Like, I don't know what to do with all this. Where do you put all this pleasure? Like, it's, I'm used to something being defined the other way. So I found my stasis in pain, or I'm, I'm just a depressed person. And then something shifts and then they have a new persona and that's unnerving because it's, it's new even though it's pleasant. So we'll find um, comfort in the strangest places. Um, and sometimes it is about opening up to, to joy that's available and cultivating that, just not clinging to it and not resisting pain when it comes. You can still problem solve pain and try to alleviate it but not through a place of this contracted resistance.
Thanks for sharing. So uh, thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. Really nice to sit with you, and um, uh, nice to have a little exchange. So I really appreciate the sangha. So. And then the closing practice to uh, share the merit. May this uh, evening of coming together and your dedication to be such a beautiful, um, long, continuous sangha um, that brought you all here many times and has brought you here tonight, and those of you who are new here tonight, may this evening be a part of your own relaxation and awakening, your own wisdom and self-care and compassion. May that awaken, and may it ripple forward from tonight and touch countless people who you'll interact uh, as you flow through your own life. And may this community uh, continue to ripen into uh, care and wisdom in how you treat each other and hold each other with care and respect. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.